Thomas Hughes spoke uh, so informantly and eloquently about the injustices, the inequities in our society, uh, and that it was certainly appropriate to the subject. Uh, but you did not speak about the system which, for some people, creates those equities universally, internationally. And there's a reason for that, I think, if you mind. But uh, you might share that reason with us. And then I want to also mention that Channing did refer constantly to the economic factor, the political factor, the political process by which we will achieve, achieve justice. And for her, it was, it was the meaningful route to take, I think. Perhaps she might well make a comment on, on Thomas's failure, as I see it, to mention the system <laughs> which created. <laughs> Go ahead. Well, I, I completely agree. I did not address the system because that is a very scary thing to address, especially for an environmental science student. However, um, I, I think that, I mean, whether it be the economic system or the political system, um, I spoke mostly about social systems, but they're very intertwined. Uh, the economic system is a big problem, I think, because it has a tendency of remo removing the humanity uh, from the equation. Um, so that, you know, humans are seen as being resources and commodities. Uh, and so policy is made uh, from, you know, this macro scale. And you've got all these individuals who maybe may not be considered for, you know, whatever variations they have in their personal beings that need to be accommodated for and, and within their, their social spheres. Um, as far as, re you know, remedying the economic system and the political system, I have no idea how to, to touch that one. But um, I think that it has to begin, like I said, with my Margaret Mead quote at the end, with the individual. It has to start uh, at the small scale, and we have to influence people with our spheres of influence and, and let that propagate outwards um, so that we can affect uh, change at the larger scale. I mean... The only way that changes can occur at a large scale in a, in a drastic way that you know that we may need to uh, to better achieve global justice would either be if if you know that happened or if things just got so bad that there was you know some sort of revolution or you know a sudden tipping point to change um, from the current to some more ideal form of of a political representation or um, more controlled capitalism. Not that tall. Um, I guess in uh, in Tom in Thomas's speech, I don't disagree with anything that he has to say. I do agree with him in that it does really need to start at the bottom. And I hope that I got that across in saying that you know we need to this reform. We need to have this be a democratic process. We need to have the people involved. And when I say democratic process, I don't necessarily mean just dropping your name in a ballot. You know, dropping your vote. And then that's it, you know, four years later, we'll check it back and see, you know, what's what, and then I'll try again. You know, democracy has to take on a meaning beyond that. Um, and saying that the system needs to change, I mean, um, it, you, you, I did attack the economic system because I believe that the political system doesn't warrant a ton of power unless you have some sort of an economic uh, oomph behind you, just for lack of a better word, you need to have money to put forward your suggestions. I mean, if you are looking at, into a democracy um, and you you give your uh, 
you name your finance minister as you know the, as the head of one of the corporations. Well, if you're looking into that, then how can you expect that you know all the rest of your even if the rest of your your cabinet is left-wing people who are interested in what it is that you are interested in. If you have somebody who's in charge of the purse strings, who is for the system, the current system, we can't expect any change to happen. You have to have control of some sort of funds in order to bring about this um, social change and environmental change. My name is Frank Toth. First of all, with a beautiful redhead like that, Irish day to day. I think you should sing Irish song for us. Irish <laughs> Bless you. Enjoyed your speech enormously. You painted a beautiful economic picture of where we're going, and the fact you proved that Canada's going backwards. We have no political party is firmly attacking our electoral. So we have the oldest method of electing our people in the world. If you can donate $11,000 per head, you know, how many bucks have they got to tell you their, their program or malarkey, okay? The rich people have the 11000 The ordinary working man isn't going to put it. It doesn't matter if he gets 75% back. He don't have the money. So our electoral system, we don't have even one political party really tooting for, uh, for a change in our electoral system. Secondly, it used to be, I'm from the old old days, really, that we used to have the look forward to the university people to show the way. Our G20 and G8 conferences, Montreal, Toronto, within the last eight months, we had 50,000 policemen battering people just to get home. And we criticized the rest of the world. So where do we start? Where, where are we going to get started? Where are we going to get this leadership that you talk about? Where do we get the leadership? I guess um, this is where if we had asked, you know, what the uh, what is justice on the Canadian level, um, I would have talked extensively about our education system. And we desperately need to get we need we need to get this leadership coming from the very bottom. We don't need this leadership to you know be um, you know a Clinton saga or anything of of that nature. We need to have you know people who know what it's like to grow up in a trailer park, who know what it's like to go to a school that doesn't you know rank you know anywhere. We need to have these people who know. Know what the common person, what the average everyday person who's speaking layman's words is going through. Um, that said, you know, we really need to have, we don't, I mean, it's, it's great to unite behind a common face for a cause, but we need to start realizing that this leadership is the people in this room, that you can have more than one leader, that you can have a group of people leading a cause, leading a party, and we need to look at this more as a co-op rather than, you know, as one person in power. It would be great if we had the face to unite behind, but instead if we do have an idea to unite behind, I believe that we'd be able to find the leadership within the people. Directed at both of us. Um, you can comment on the issue. Where does the leadership come from? Yeah. 
I think I think the leadership comes from the individual. Um, I don't think it's. I mean, while I, I I agree that we need political reform and that we need it badly, I think that with our current political system, if we had the leadership within our communities and and the role models that we need in order to take those steps in the right direction, then we could do it with our current political system. Um, that's not to say that we shouldn't change our political system, but these role models and this leadership that we need needs to be more grassroots. We need to you know, make an example for people around us in our social spheres um, so that they know what to look up to, so that they know what's okay, so that we're not... You know, so that we're not engaging in the tragedy of the commons like we seem to be doing. That we're just, you know, you know, we need to be encouraged to be better than what we think is okay. And and so far, we know our political leaders aren't giving us that leadership. So why don't we give it to ourselves? Uh, I'm Deb Garvey with the University of Lethbridge, and I, I just have to say I love what you're doing. It's my area of research, looking at tax policy and ecosystems. So. I've just come back from five intensive days down in Arizona with uh, the world-leading research bodies in this area, including the Nobel laureate of 2009, Eleanor Ostrom. And uh, listening to your presentations and what I've just heard for the last five days, I think they'd be really, really impressed with what's happening here in Lethbridge. Um, on um, Thomas's side, uh, I would say that you're looking at the big macro ecosystem, uh, which is what was addressed is how do we tie our um, social sciences with our physical sciences and get that all together. And that's a huge gap that was recognized, so I think it's great that we're moving forward. Um, Channing, on your side, the very last keynote speaker talked about the thing that might be the the item that can actually change any of this, which is near and dear to my heart, is a change in our pricing mechanisms, which involves a tax at the end of the day. And so um, I, I just applaud you for your efforts. I think it's wonderful. And so my question, uh, to get into some of the more systemic um, issues here that I'll, I'll throw out at you is what's your take on the NGO involvement in um, third world countries because there are those for it and there are those that are strongly against it and I just wonder if you have any say on NGOs. I'm not. I'm not very. Sorry. Do you want me to go first? Yeah. <laughs> I'm not very versed in NGOs. Uh, I do know that the argument against them is that they they go in and uh, they impede development by forcing people to either to adopt certain economic practices and to not diversify. Um, but there are NGOs that that do good in the world. So I mean, I I don't know where really to stand on whether they're good or bad. I mean, we don't really. We have you know a, a time in history where NGOs you know took a step to the plate and we have ever since then and we haven't you know we can't really compare how the world is on a global scale um, with and without them because all, all we have is NGOs now and we don't know how our development would have would have occurred without them right so um, it's difficult to make that 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 comparison um, I'm personally in favor of NGOs because I think it they they appeal to the individual sense of you know make, doing good in the world um, on the other hand, I don't think they do all the good that they need to do, and they are also band-aid solutions to a lot of problems. Um, and they also give people an excuse to think that, you know, what we're doing is okay. We're, we're good enough because we have NGOs, and that's definitely not the case. And we need to avoid that kind of fallacy of, of logic and thought. So while I would never discourage somebody from wanting to go out and help the people help the planet, help whatever it is that they're doing within their NGO. What I would say is that 
I mean, the, the presence of NGOs gives us a false sense of security. It lets us think that people are doing, that, you know, th- something is happening to change the lives of these people over on the other side of the world. But I don't really think that, you know, the well-being of somebody in Africa should be left up to um, philanthropy. Really, it should be regulated. We should be giving these people, you know, their fair chance, the resources that they need. Um, and I don't know that NGOs as a volunteer group, as, a, as you know, something that you, you provide generously to, um, is, is the really – is really the proper route to go. I mean, these people, it should be regulated. It should be something that the UN provides, not based, you know, the the UN or some governing body can provide rather than just leaving it up to the good of the individual to just contribute whenever they feel willy-nilly. Harry Shellington. Thank you very much for your presentation. I really enjoyed it, and I appreciate uh, the effort you've gone to and the research you've done. <clears throat> I'm thinking about uh, reflecting on your remarks, both of you, thinking about the fact that we may well be in a in a, an election in another ten days or so, and I'm wondering whether, and I know that uh, many in this population will not vote, and many in your generation will not vote. I guess part of my question is, do you intend to vote in this election, and? Um, I'm not asking you about your political preference, but I didn't hear, with uh, particularly with Thomas's uh, reference to individual action, I didn't hear any reference to political parties. Uh, uh, and um, I invite hearing both of you comment on whether you see healthy political parties as being part of the uh, arena where these changes happen. Okay, um, so we're talking about political parties. I like the concept of political parties in that they give... um, I do intend to vote. I do intend to vote, and for anybody who really wants to know how I'm going to vote, you can talk to me afterwards. Um, But (laughs) that said, um, political parties are great in the sense that they can um, sort of unify a set of ideas that makes it marketable to the people, makes it understandable. Um, You know, this is our platform, this is what we believe in. Um, My issue with political parties, um, in some cases, is actually party solidarity. And that is in that once you're elected, you should really act on behalf of your constituents. And if for some reason your party is doing something that you might disagree with, you know, because of the wills and the situation of your constituents, um, party solidarity can really create issues um, with, you know, who do you go with? I mean, technically, they – you. As a, as you're voting for, you know, an NDP or a Tory or whatever, you're voting for a certain set of values. So if they don't follow those set of values, where do you go? So um, myself, I much prefer the concept of uh, of more of more having independence, more individuals running. Um, do we have a part? Is a part of the question like, do we have a party that is functional? Is that no? No. <laughs> I, have, I have two main problems with the party system. Uh, the first is touching on what Shanning was getting at, is that when you vote for a party, uh, I mean, you have to categorize yourself. I mean, you can either be this, you know, chunk of opinions and views, 
or this big conglomerate of you know economic and environmental and social policies or something over here you know and, and you basically get you know well here you get one choice really but in some you get two or three choices and in the states it's two and you're either one thing or another and humans are not one thing or another we have very diverse views we have very diverse opinions and we'd like to see a lot of different things happening in the world and and to just represent an individual or a party that is going to you know portray your your views and your beliefs um it's very difficult to do my other problem which is an even bigger problem with the party system is that it's like a game i went to uh I went to a talk at the university where there were three poli sci profs and they were giving kind of a you know a one by one of the of the situation uh with in Alberta right now with uh with the uh the, the election and I'd never been I've never been in a poli sci class and I've never been to a talk like this but they were they were talking as if it was like a hockey game or something like you know oh uh you know so and so will do this and but if he says this and anything could go over here and then you know all these things could happen but and it's not actually about their policies it's about what they do and what they say and how they present themselves and it's it's a competition and and manifest in that competition are you know the 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 ads on TV the conservatives are, are, are you know putting out about the liberals and then um just that, you know, make yourself look good by bashing the other guy as opposed to actually having meaningful policies. So do I have a solution for, for party politics? No. But, yeah, there are issues that we need to address there. And, and I think it comes down to valuing, um, you know, what the party politi- politics stand for um, as opposed to, you know, voting for... I don't know what I'm trying to say. <laughs> v- voting... voting um, Knowing what you're voting for is, is the big thing. And um, trying to, you know, let your representative know about what you're voting for as opposed to just saying, I'm voting for you instead of I'm, I'm voting for these policies, right? And after you elect a candidate, you can still tell them about, you know, what it is that you want as opposed to just saying, oh, I want what you want because you're my representative, right? Hi, my name is Knut Peterson. Having... Uh in observing the uh, student speaker challenge at the university, I can say that you, although you were good to start out with, you, uh, you ended up being very polished in the end, and I congratulate you on that. <coughs> uh, I just wonder if you could give me your th- give us your thoughts on uh, social media, which is uh, increasingly important in uh, uprisings. You, you you saw in Calgary the social media had a big hand in electing the new mayor. Uh, the Middle East has been largely driven by social media, the uprising in the Middle East, uh, and it relates to younger people. It relates to Terry's question about young young people voting. Do you see uh, social media taking us to the next level? Do you want to go ahead? Um. I think social media, whether it's good or bad, we've got it now. And I think that it's a, I know that it's a very powerful tool. Um, something like Facebook, uh, being involved with LPERG and Amnesty International, we use it extensively. And it's almost our number one tool that we use to get people out to events and to get representation. So that being said, it's a, it's a powerful tool that can be used for good and for bad. And, and so um, we've got to respect it in that sense. And, and hopefully, 
it will be seen um, in a way that can be used for good. In terms of something like trying to get voter, tur- voter turnout, I don't see how it could be used for bad in that sense because, you know, you're not going to get you know, people on Facebook saying, oh, don't go vote. Uh, it's a terrible idea. So in, in some regards, it, it can be a very good thing and a very powerful tool, as with the elections in Calgary. And, um, yeah, so, yeah, powerful tool. It could go either way. Hopefully people use it for good as opposed to bad. I think that social media, such as Facebook or Twitter, is, as Thomas said, it's an excellent tool to reach out to the people. But at the same time, I would be weary of it giving people a false sense of security. Um, and, and what I mean by that is that in sometimes, um, you know, you're raising, I, I think uh, it was actually on the, it made it to the, at least CFRN news up in Edmonton. Um, but uh, that there was a Facebook pledge going around, ladies, you know, let us know the color of your bra to raise awareness for um, uh, breast cancer research. And it raised awareness, which is fantastic. But, you know, for the people who were contributing to that, who, you know, yes, you did raise the awareness of the breast cancer movement, you also, you didn't really do anything in, in that sense. You raised the awareness, but you haven't made a, a true con- contribution to um, the funds for the research and development or, you know, your own personal health or anything. So I would be, I would be very concerned that, um, that social media, that certain things on social media, if we think, you know, oh, I just, I liked this person on Facebook, therefore, you know, I've made my contribution to their campaign. It's not enough. So while I would encourage it being used as a tool of mass communication and, you know, um, just a way of, of making a forum and getting discussions started, I would also be weary of using it as our main method of communicating with people because the best way to communicate with people is to go and talk to them, really. We have time for one more question. <laughs> <laughs> My question is to Channing, and I think she knows what I'm going to ask. Uh, It's a question of how you can change people. You can change people through words. That's what I have done all my life, and uh, mostly failure. I didn't change the mind of anybody. And I... beginning to realize that it's a lot of emotions. Mr. Stephen Harper is very good at it. Attack ad, etc., etc. And Channing, you're a music student. And uh, I want you to comment the role of music appealing to emotion of the people so that you have an entry into their mind to change its mind. Whenever I hear Polonaise and Chopin, I break into tears and talk, and uh, think about patriotism, which sounds very old-fashioned, but it's the truth. A lot of people are moved by music, hip-hop, jazz, Bob Dylan. Uh, if you want to comment on it, Thomas, you can do that too. But what about the role of art, like music, visual art, etc., etc.? And if you don't change the mind of people through emotions, you don't get to people. Please comment on it. Uh, 
he basically says my answer, right? Um, so, so um, in the role of making an appeal to people's emotions, I guess um, my comments would be that if you have a good idea and you believe in this good idea and you have the background, the knowledge, the life experience to back up this idea, I mean, why wouldn't you throw your passion behind it? I mean, this is, this is not necessarily making an appeal to the arts, but just making an appeal to the passions. Um, if we look at, you know, in the 60s, the 70s, when a lot of this movement, the social movement was going on, there was a strong aesthetic backing to what was going on. Um, actually, at the university, we offer a, a history course, two sets of history courses. They are uh, the history of rock and roll. And you, when you, when you uh, like I've been grading for this course for quite a while. And when you experience, you know, the music and you, you analyze what was going on, you know, the music really fed into what the people were doing. It gave them hope, and it gave them a way of unifying themselves behind the lyrics, behind the tunes. It gave them a way of communicating um, with one another just by listening, you know, even just publicly listening to certain musics. Um, it gave them a way of communicating to people that let them in without the guards going up. I mean, not too many people, you know, throw up their hands in resistance and say, you know, back off, buddy. I don't like what you're saying when you're saying it in a song. So that said, um, there are a lot of people out here with some really, really great ideas. And oftentimes it seems that they don't have the, the means or the know-how to go ahead and make these marketable to the public. And I hate saying marketable because it's, it's, doesn't, it doesn't ring well with me. But really... Um, the ideas that we're up against are being marketed to us, the ideas of consumerism, um, you know, corporations, and the, the idea that democracy is the same as free market system. Um, these are being marketed to us every day, so it's time that we maybe take the reins, turn it around, and we start marketing our own ideas with oomph. Uh, just quickly, music is special because... Everyone in the world experiences it. In, in, in any culture, there's music. And therefore, there's an element of humanity to it. And I think that's the thing that appeals to people's emotions. But that said, music alone doesn't cut it. I mean, I could listen to Mozart and have never listened to it before, and I could have emotions, but I don't know what they are. I don't know how to you know, use them. And so in that sense, music can be a tool but there still has to be a broader societal context and a role model behind that music. And I think that's what I think that's why the music industry is powerful in that sense is because it gives you a role model through that emotional response. And so, for example, Bob Dylan um, was a role model because he stood for something and then he expressed it with his music and people could relate to the music as opposed to, you know, if you just read his poems or you, even though poetry is a form of art, of art as well, if you just said what he was saying, people can relate more with the music. So in that sense, I think music is a tool. And if we can have, uh, we need to grow good role models and to who want to use that tool. For, for the betterment. I might just add one thing. If, if the art isn't socially relevant, then what's the point? And I'll say that as an art student. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, guys. All right. Uh, let's hear it one more time for Channing and uh, Thomas. <clears throat>